Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology and Around. My guest today is my friend, the one and only Dr. Michael Bird. Mike Bird is Deputy Principal and Lecturer in Theology at uh, Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He's also a world-renowned uh, biblical scholar and theologian, the author of over 30 books, including the recently released book, uh, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, A Christian Case for Liberty, Equality, and Secular and Secular Government. He also is the author of the forthcoming book, A Bird's Eye View of Luke Acts. And we talk about a lot of stuff related to uh, politics, what, what it even means to be living in a secular age. And he even kind of helps correct our understanding of what secular age even means. And then we kind of go back and forth on evangelicals and their involvement um, in politics and what that should look like. We end by talking about how uh, certain issues related to the trans conversation is woven into the fabric of a lot of our p- political discourse and how Christians should think through that. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Dr. Michael Burke. Michael, it's so good to have you back on the podcast. I, I, I do have to say uh, our relationship goes way back to when I was a PhD student in Scotland. You were a a new professor at Highland Theological College. I think it was what it was called. Is it still called that? Yeah. It's, it still is. It's still there. Yeah. It's, a, it's a wonderful college nestled in the very the very summit of the Highlands, just outside Inverness. Which is right uh, off of Loch Ness. Uh, so you, you were a few miles away from Nessie. Did you ever see Nessie? No, no, but I, I drove past Loch Ness many, many a times, and I did wonder if I if I threw a fishing line in there with a big chunk of meat on it, you know, what would I get? I just went there recently last, uh, last year and did a little more research on, on the myth, whatever you want to call it. And I didn't realize how many reported sightings there have been like hundreds a year or something like people report seeing, seeing Nessie, um, some pretty wild stories. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that, Mike. We're here to talk about your latest book. Well, we'll start. We'll start with your latest book, "Religious Freedom in a Secular Age: A Christian Case for Liberty, Equality, and Secular Government." So, I mean, you are, as I said in the intro, I mean, you're, you're primarily a biblical scholar, and that's what your degrees in. You've written like you know seven hundred books on in biblical studies and theology. Why this book? Like, where did this book come from? How long have you have you been thinking about this this idea of religious freedom? Oh, I've been thinking about it since 2016, uh, when Australia started having debates about same-sex marriage, and we have now passed same-sex marriage as legal in Australia. There was a whole bunch of issues going on, and people were wondering about the implications for religious freedom. Would ministers of religion be compelled to officiate at you know same-sex ceremonies and the like? And and what's this going to happen? And we were told, look, there's not going to be any problems. There'll be no sort of issues coming up. But there was a Catholic bishop in Tasmania, which is like a little island at the bottom of, of Australia. And he wrote a little pamphlet um, explaining very pastorally, very cordially, the Catholic Church's opposition to same-sex marriage. He was defending what was, at the time, the current law of the land. And he was just, you know, and, and this was a book to be given to every parent who had a child at a Catholic school. And just basically a Catholic account of what we think marriage is and is not. As a result of publishing that pamphlet, uh, a complaint was made uh, by a uh, by an activist, and the Tasmanian Human Rights Commissioner said that the Archbishop had a case to answer. Hmm. And you had a situation where a Catholic bishop was going to be hauled before a government tribunal. Because he did, apparently with heinousness and malice of forethought, conspired to teach Catholic beliefs about marriage wow. to Catholics. <laughs> and that, that was that was the point for me. I went like, like, like what? Is that that can't be right. That can't be right. And that had me looking, but you know, we have religious freedom. And I looked at our constitution, and our, our constitution, the Australian Constitution is what I would describe as a British appropriation of the American model. So, you know, our constitution, basically, if some Brits said, let's imitate what the Americans are doing, it's kind of like that. And so we have a kind of free exercise clause and a non-establishment clause in our own kind of way, but it only applies to the federal government. It doesn't apply to the states. The states are free to develop their own relationship with religious bodies and religious communities. So there's something of a a lacuna, a gap Hmm. in our religious freedom 
protections. And that's really what's causing a lot of the debates we've been having in Australia. And it was kind of like going down into that rabbit hole um, that led me to think, well, what are, well, what do we do for religious freedom in Australia? Because we've just, just assumed it where Christianity has been hegemonic. And uh, we also have uh, a strong sense of secularity. And then I started investigating secularism. And that blew my head away because I was always used to thinking of secularism as the equivalent of Darth Vader or Voldemort. You know, secularism and secularists are the people who are out to get me. And mm. I discovered a number of things. Uh, first of all, uh, secularism is not one thing. It's about 20 different things. There are different ways of being secular. Mm. The secularism of France is different to the secularism of Turkey, which is different to the secularism of Australia or the secularism of Japan. And yeah, so secularism is, is, is not one thing. It's, it's a bunch of different things. The other thing is secularism was an explicitly Christian invention. You could argue the roots of secularism go back hmm. to the 12th century, you know, reformatio in the, uh, the medieval church, but really reach a high point after the wars over religion when, you know, people in Europe decided, you know, this whole thing about Catholics and Protestants cutting each other's heads off or blowing each other's castles up, we've got to stop doing that, okay? So we've got to find some sort of place, uh, some sort of way of managing religious differences. Mm. And we've decided these are the areas where religion uh, is not allowed to matter, like in government, and these are, the these are the areas where religion will be immune from government coercion. And that obviously reads gets very concrete expression in the uh, in the uh, American Republic where you've got you know Thomas Jefferson's wall of separation between church and state. Mm -hmm. So I mean it was, it was interesting learning about all these things, varieties of secularism, uh, the Christian roots of secularism and why secularism is a good thing because it stops us on the one hand being a theocracy, but on the other hand, it also means the government doesn't tell you how to do religion or take punitive actions against you because of your religion. So that, in a nutshell, is really what the book is about. How do we have religious freedom with all these different issues floating about, government, church, state, LGBT rights, how do we balance them with you know, re religious bodies wanting to maintain their identity, and how can we make secularism work for people of all faith and none. So, so are you saying secularism, by definition, already implies religious freedom? That, that the very idea of secularism assumes that there will be religious freedom, or is that pushing it too far? Y yes and no. Secularism, in its uh, best and benign sense, definitely is about uh, protecting religious freedom. Secularism says, you know, the government cannot tell me how to do my religion. And the government cannot punish me, discriminate against me because of my religion. That's the good side of secularism. But we all know there's other species of secularism mm -hmm. that can be more militant, can be coercive. Uh, so that's where you're ranging from North Korea, the Soviet Union, China, and you know other places around the world today. So th there are definitely bad varieties of secularism. But Preston, let me make let me make a really interesting contrast between the secularism, say, of America and the United Kingdom, okay? So America is, in effect, I would argue, a, a Christian country. It's definitely founded as a, a secular Christian country where it was kind of assumed Christianity would, in some sense, would be hege hegemonic, but no single brand of Christianity would be allowed to predominate, okay? Mm -hmm. And there are different varieties of secularism. The secularity of Massachusetts is very different to the secularity of, of Texas because the brand of secularity in America is often determined by local contexts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you can have different sort of subspecies in that. Uh, but America is a place where you do have a, a resurgent kind of Christian nationalism in some ways. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it creates a, a republic of a variety of freedoms freedom of religion in general. But but consider this. In the United Kingdom right now, they have a Christian king, a Hindu prime minister, an atheist opposition leader, a Buddhist home secretary, mm. and a Muslim mayor of London, and they have an established church with the Church of England. So, you know, the because it's the, it's the crown through various committees, actually appoints bishops and key positions in the Church of England. And I would argue that the Church of England, even with an established church, 
is probably more pluralistic and participationist than the somewhat Christianized American Republic. Ah, oh, that's interesting. So, so secular. I mean, I haven't. What? what well, two questions. What's the root meaning of the word secular? I mean, is it? I'm sure yeah. you know the Latin backwards and forwards or whatever. Like, what's the? Uh, what does the word actually mean? And then. I, I, I always, I always, I often, maybe I won't anymore, use the word secular kind of as in contrast to religious. You have religious and then you have secular. You have Christian and secular. And we have our Christian culture inside the church and you have secular culture kind of outside the church. And I, I don't use that to mean it's all a bunch of devils running around in pitchforks, but it's just not religious. Um, so I'm, I'm probably not using the term correctly then when I use it in that kind of contrasting way. Is that um Correct. Yeah, well, I mean, you can use it in a few different ways. Seculum, the Latin seculum, just means pertaining to this age. Okay, that's, that's oh. what it means. Remember, you know, the Romans had, remember, the secular games, which was like these games they put on every 110 years or so or something like that because it meant people would see games that no one else had saw. So it was the games of this age or this generation you know, or, or something like that. Um, so that's what secular means at the sort of okay. the Latin level. Now, again, there are militant and nasty varieties sure. of secularism, people saying we want to reduce the visibility of religion and reduce the influence of religion. So you, you, you can get those nasty, pernicious varieties of secularism. But the intention behind a secularity was about creating a fair playing field. Because mm. I'm sure, Preston, you would not like me, the elected governor of Idaho, and saying from this day forth, all parents shall present their children for baptism on the seventh day after being <laughs> born. Uh, the only worship to be tolerated will be that using the Book of Common Prayer. Um, I will tell you what theology of the Eucharist you're allowed to have, um, which means Francis Chan will be locked up if he ever steps foot in the state of Idaho. Um, you know, I mean, no one wants the government doing that, you know, demanding everyone be Anglican or a certain type of Presbyterian or a Methodist. So the government's not going to tell you how to do your religion or punish you for your own religious proclivities that um, that are out of sync with the majority. I mean, secularism should protect minorities against a majority. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. So do you think it's largely misunderstood in, in, in Christian context when people talk about our secular culture? They do mean it in this kind of more narrow, kind of militant, you know, not just non-Christian, but anti-Christian kind of spirit? Is that what you encounter? And are you trying to maybe correct or maybe expand people's understanding of secularism? Yeah. Is that part of the goal of the book? Yeah, it's it's both. I think there is, we talk about a religious illiteracy. People mm -hmm. don't understand religion, but there's also a secular illiteracy. And that's on both sides. That's on the Christian side and it's on the non-Christian side. So for Christians, we tend to think of secularism as the boogeyman. You know, the secularists yeah, sure. are out to get us. Where I would say, no, actually, secularism is what protects you okay. from, you know, radical pro progressive governments. Secularism is what protects you from Christian nationalism, okay? So secularism in those senses are good things. But I, I do meet some progressives who uh, have their own ideas of secularism. Like in people say to me in Australia, like, but Australia is a secular country, so just keep your religion in some sign of cave until you die off. And my response to them is Australia is not a secular country. We are a multicultural country mm. with a secular government. What enables Australia to be a very successful multicultural and multi-faith country is the secularity of government. The government is secular the country is not. You you mentioned Christian nationalism a few times. I, I, I knew we would go here eventually. Maybe we can just dive in now. Uh, how, how do you, I have so many questions here. Um, do you address Christian nationalism in the book? Um, do you see Christian nationalism in Australia in a similar way that exists in America? And are there similarities, differences? And I guess another question, you can pick whichever one you want to start with. You know, Do you see this as a major threat to society in the church or kind of a fringe thing that maybe it's getting more airtime than it, than it should, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to pass judgment on my American friends, Preston. You know I'm, you know me, I'm very circumspect with my opinions, and I don't like saying things <laughs> that are necessary and inflammatory. Yeah, 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 um, that's, that's my opinion. Uh, I, 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 I think Christian nationalism certainly is a thing in America, and I don't think, and it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's one thing to say 
Christian real quick, real quick, real quick. Why, why don't you define it? Because I, I do feel like there, you ask seven people and they get eight different definitions of what Christian okay. nationalism is. So. Christian nationalism says uh, America is a Christian country. Christianity should ha- be hegemonic and we should have Christian leaders in power. That's, that, that's my understanding of it. Now, I, I, I would say America and in, in divine providence has a lot of Christian influences in it for the better, may I add. It has a Christian, it is a, it's now a very diverse country with a Christian heritage. And I think a lot of the success of the American Republic is owed to its Christian heritage. Uh, but this, and this is something I learned from, from John Stackhouse. What makes American evangelicals distinct in the world is they think they're supposed to be in charge. Now, that is not something you will get from Christians in Indonesia. Christians in Indonesia don't say, this country belongs to us Christians and these 200 million Muslims have stolen it from us. Uh, or Christians in India don't talk like that way, or China. Or even, you know, I think um, uh, even in, in the UK, sort of the real real devout Christians, have all, I think have always been a bit of a minority, uh, at least since, the, uh, at least since the, 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 the Middle Ages, if you like. So... I think Christian nationalism tries to translate a lot of a lot of civil projects into a religious task, which has the effect of bolstering the political capital of one particular group. In other words, it, it, it simply provides religious religious credibility to what are some uh, explicitly terrestrial or earthly political projects. Okay. So that's why I think Christian nationalism is a bad thing. Or, or to, to give another example, Christian nationalism tries to combine political and religious authority. Okay. Now, Preston, the Bible has a technical word for someone who tries to combine political and religious authority. And that technical word is antichrist. That is the <laughs> biblical word for someone who wants to be high priest and yeah. king. Because, Preston, we both know there is only one who is king of kings and the great high priest, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone else who aspires to a similar diumvirate of power, combining the religious and the political, uh, Mm -hmm. has become an or the antichrist. So that's why I'm against Christian nationalism. It's not good for the nation. It's not good for faith i believe christians can be involved in politics i'm not i'm not an anabaptist i'm not saying we should all be hiding in the catacombs worried that somewhere somehow someone might elect us to public office um i do believe we can be involved in um in in political tasks and project but the but the goal can never be hegemony the idea that we need to have our tribe in charge all the time otherwise it's the end of the world or otherwise we're in exile. So our tribe in charge, are you saying, and I, I do want to push back on something you said earlier uh, uh, in at the beginning of your response here. When you say our tribe in power, are you saying we need Christians, specifically Christians in political power, that that's the concern you have? Or Christians simply want their party, uh, a member of their favorite political party in charge? Because I do think those are kind of different things. For instance, um, and personally, while the numbers are very heavy, further on the on the on the right, meaning I think the overwhelming majority of Christians, in as much as what you're saying is a problem in America, the problem is very heavy on more right wing Christianity. Um, ideologically, I think it's the same thing on left and right. It's just the numbers are a lot fewer. But when maybe, for lack of better terms, more progressive Christians, I see the same thing happening, just on a much lower scale, numbers wise. But they might be so against Donald Trump that they start having messianic visions of not Jesus of, but of, you know, the, the democratic candidate that's going to run against and destroy Donald Trump. And they would freak out and lose their minds. And, you know, if Trump wins and I'm like, well, that is a sign. I think you're investing again, too much hope in the opposite side of the spectrum. So again, the question is, is it the problem you see, is it Christ, evangelical Christians wanting a specifically a Christian in charge or simply their favorite political candidate, whether or not that person is a confessing Christian or not? I, I think it can be a bit of both. Sometimes they want a, a Christian in charge. But, I mean, if it was just a Christian in charge, then why didn't so many people back Jimmy Carter against Reagan? Right. So, I mean, if because, I mean, yeah. and let's be honest, I, th- I, think, I think Carter was probably more explicitly evangelical and Christian and, and Baptist than what Reagan was. 
Reagan was very good with the, um, you know, dropping the right sound bites that resonate with people of faith. But in terms of real pious devotion, I, I, or, or like, you know, spiritual disciplines, I would have said Carter. So that makes me think yeah. it's the latter. I want my party in yes, charge. I would agree. And my party's got just enough amount of, of um, Christian wrapping paper on it. Yeah. That I would, I, I was hoping, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a loaded question, but it was kind of a little bit. Cause I, I do, in my experience, it is much, that that is much more pro- problematic. Like I, I, I meet, you know, more Christians that would be really wanting Donald Trump, for instance, in charge or not even that, but it's like a Republican candidate. And whether that person is visibly living out some semblance of the Christian faith is a distant secondary. It's, it's more, this person will serve my political interests. And I think the faith commitment of that candidate is really less important. Um, I think back and like in the George W. Bush J days, maybe there was more like excitement over, I think this guy's a Christian or whatever. As far as I understand, Ronald Reagan did not have any, any, uh, fact check me on this, but I, I, I didn't think he even pretended to be, I didn't think he had any kind of public Christian presence at all. But maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he, maybe he had the rhetoric. I don't know. I, th- I think he did have the right rhetoric. He knew, he knew how to read the room. Yeah. Uh, but I, he, he did have some religious commitments, but they were, uh, I think, a little bit more eclectic because, okay. I mean, him and his wife were doing things like, you know, visiting astrologers and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, so he was a little bit more e- eclectic, but he, he certainly, be- Reagan definitely believed that um, God wanted America to be hegemonic. Okay. As a bulwark against the godless forces of communism and the Soviet Union, right? Okay. So he he definitely had what you might call a civil religion, Christianity. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, in some sense, kind of um, war between I mean, good and like, evil, uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I like to think that George Bush was a um, you know a, a, a devout Christian, I and mean, the few times I, I heard people talk about things George W. Bush had said. Um, off like off camera or on the side, I got the impression that he is a person of genuine um, faith and commitment. I mean, it was it was part of his journey out of alcoholism, um, you know, in, in that sense. So I like to think he was uh, you know, sincere and and and, and genuinely d- d- devoted. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so where I went, I your original phrase, it sounds good, but I do question it. Well. I question the comprehensiveness of it when you said, what did you say that evangelicals are the only people who have a, I want to quote you correctly, a divine right to be in charge or something like that? What's the, what's the? Yeah. Evangelicals think that they are supposed to be in charge. Yeah. In charge of the country or just yeah. in charge, in charge of the country in the highest echelons of power? I, I would say in my anecdotal experience for every one evangelical I meet that would fit that bill, I meet 99 that simply that just don't, I don't, I don't. Um, and I think, I think the ones that do make the headlines and everything. So I would just say that that just feels, yeah, I think a lot of evangelicals listening would say, who's he talking about? That, that ain't me. <laughs> like, I, and, I, and I would agree. Like there is the Anabaptist tradition, which has always been wary of political power and wanted the separation of church and state. But, but I, I mean, I'm not an expert on, um, uh, American religion and its interface with politics, but th- th- there has always been a, a, a theocratic tendency. I mean, here's an interesting fact for you. Here's an interesting fact: uh, Alexander Hamilton considered running against Jefferson as president on an explicitly Christian political party ticket. Um, so, I mean, the, the, there's a few problems why the re- reasons why it never happened. But he considered, you know, because Jefferson was considered a, you know, a de facto atheist, a Francophile with all those French mistresses and the like. And Hamilton thought about running against him as an explicitly Christian candidate. So, I mean, that goes to show you that this sort of debate goes back into the very roots of the uh, the American Republic. Yeah. Uh, how Christianity, politics, freedom of religion, all intersex was was debated from the very beginning. Yeah. I no I, historically I I can't you know this is so typical when I engage people outside of America on American politics you guys know a lot more than I do about <laughs> I hardly know who Alexander Hamilton is is he the dude that got shot by Raymond Burr is that the the the, the duel yeah, is that uh, Aaron, the, Burr, is it, Aaron Burr Aaron Burr see there, I need to go to you for my American history um, 
when, no, when I go outside America, people are way more interested in America than I think a lot of Americans. Well, we all, we all think we're, we all think we're the 51st state of America. We all live in the <laughs> Anglophone world. Well, and everybody's affected by it. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Well, here's the funny thing, Preston. I mean, Australia has our own, the high court of Australia, right? We have like the high court. I could not name a single judge on the high court of Australia, <laughs> but I reckon I could easily name two thirds of the Supreme Court of the United yeah. States. I reckon I could nail two thirds of them just off the top of my head. So well, de- America our- does, yeah, it does have imperial. We can even talk about America as empire, maybe later. But um, yeah, there's a. I mean, I think it, it obviously has a huge influence for good or for ill on on just globalism in general i guess so where i would push back is i i look i like you travel lots of different churches and stuff probably in the last four years i may maybe have been at over 100 churches of probably 20 different denominations none of them are mennonite and i honestly can't think of a single christian leader that i talked to that i would and maybe i misread them I, again i'm just just totally anecdotal that would really fit that phrase that that they would be evangelicals that really want think they have a divine right to be in charge. I think the problem is some of the ones that do fit that bill, they're the ones that make the headlines. They're the one out of the you know 100 that make the headlines, the ones that are just being faithful pastors and leaders who kind of are sick of politics, who aren't preaching political medic, they're not making any headline. They're just, they're too boring, right? They're just doing faithful ministry stuff. And it kind of comes down, I mean, it's kind of related to the whole, like the problem of like abuse and, 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 and narcissism in the church and all these cover up and stuff. And again, that's obviously a huge problem. I, I would even think it may be a growing problem that got out of control. But again, there's way more people doing really faithful ministry that will never, ever, ever make headlines because there's just no reason for them to do that. And I think part of, part of, I, I just think there is a, a bigger problem here of, of just uh, reporting and news and social media and the things that wire our algorithms and things that get people's attention and stuff. Yeah. I, I do think that we have a kind of a little bit of a warped view on reality because we live a lot of our lives online, but I'm getting into another, another. No, no, I think, I think you're right. You've got, you've got the, the reality as it's played out in media and social media. And remember the lunatics always get the airtime. <laughs> yeah. Whether that's the left or the right. The, the lunatics always get the, the headlines. Um, but I, th- I think you're going to see that there's a big shift where, you know, evangelicalism kind of really peaked in the mid nineties. Hmm. And, you know, and I think, you know, after, after the Iraq war, uh, after Trump, I think a lot of Christians have become a little bit more cautious about playing with political fire, and there is a little bit of a, a retreat. I think a lot of people have, like you know, gone all in on someone and realized that either they were a disappointment or I got duped, I got seduced, hmm. and I, I, I do see a lot more people being a lot more discerning now. Hmm in where they put their political commitments or not assuming that, well, as a Christian, I obviously have to vote for party A or party B. Uh, I think the last probably five, 10 years have made people a little bit more politically cautious hmm. than they were. But of course, you've, you know, on both, you know, both sides of the spectrum, you've got the people who are just diehards. Being a Christian means you must be X, Y, Z, you know, that type of thing. I agree. I think it's definitely there. I think it's less pervasive than it used to be. Part of it's a distrust in media. Media's trust is at an all-time low. People have access to fact-check things. I think people in authority and power have shown themselves to be addicted to power and not really addicted to truth-telling, and people are starting to be a little disenchanted with the, the powers to be, which I, do you see this as a good thing? You seem to see that as a positive thing. I, w- I would see that as a positive thing, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I, again, I don't want Christians to become apolitical and say, I'm just going to sit over here and, you know, and think about spiritual things and sure. say the Lord's Prayer three times a day, baptize yeah. myself twice a week and write a commentary on the book of Daniel waiting for God to wipe out all <laughs> the unrighteous. Um, I, don't wanna, I don't want us to do that. But I don't want us to messianize leaders. Um, so you know, I don't think I don't think you know Trump is either the anointed one or the antichrist, or you know, same for Biden for that matter. 
Yeah. Uh, we've got to stop messianizing leaders yeah. and everyone to stop saying this is the most important election of our lifetime because people say that at every election, you know, as if, you know, every, every, every election is a life and death sort of scenario because, you know, there's only, there's only four-year terms uh, mm. there and they all end. Yeah. And, you know, we have to see what happens uh, next and, and see what the next generation of leaders does and what priorities they tackle. And, yeah. you know, how do, we be, how do we be Christians in the political world we are in at the time? Yeah, yeah. What does um, healthy political involvement look like to you for a Christian? And what is unhealthy uh, political involvement? I guess you're kind of hinting at it already, but like just to, I guess, drive it home. Because um, you said you don't want Christians to be apolitical, which I hear you saying, yeah, just living out their spiritual lives and not basically not being a good citizen of, of Babylon. You're, you're not engaged. You don't really care about the issues of the day, injustice around you, uh, yeah. you're kind of living this almost like quasi or neo-gnostic view that material reality and material harm and damage and, and injustice is kind of irrelevant, um, which I, I would fully agree with that. But what, yeah, what, what is political, healthy political involvement and unhealthy political involvement look like to you? I think healthy political involvement is number one, being good at your job. Okay. So if you are a town councillor, if you are a senator, congressman, congresswoman, um, or whatever it is, be good at your job. So that's the thing, and and serve it. You know, as I think I think Paul would say, and serve uh, your constituents as unto the Lord. So I, I think you know that's the the good thing. Uh, secondly, you need to have a holistic and well rounded view of Christian values you're going to stand up for, mm-hmm. which you know f- for me it means uh, not just. You know, I mean, some people like like as if abortion is the only number one issue. Now, again, that's a complex topic we could yeah. we could go into, but there are people who think literally the the only Christian issue is you know abortion. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's other th- issues. There's you know um, you know gun control, uh, environmental care, poverty, um, racial justice. You know, how do we build strong families? Um, you know, what do we do about immigration? You know, um, how do we, I, I, I don't, I'm not a, I'm a big believer of open, I'm not a big believer in open borders, but how do you have a compassionate response to people claiming refugee status? I mean, how do you think through these things Christianly? So that, that that's what I think makes a good politician. Uh, a bad one is a person who cl- is bad at their job, mm. is only in it for the money, their own well and self-enrichment or self-aggrandizement. Christianity is just a show, a uh, performance. Um, you know, they, 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 if, if being a Christian were a crime, there would be no evidence to convict them. <laughs> and they use a lot of rhetoric like, you know, we need to take this nation back for God. Uh, we need to make Christianity great again or stuff like that. And yet where Christianity is simply a prop um, for a wider socio-political project, I think that is a bad way of doing religion whether you're you know democrat republican or independent mm-hmm. anything where you're just doing a kind of performance and it's just rhetoric uh you know whether it's out of you know own personal piety and devotion and you're not really involved in the church and you've got a mistresses on the side or something i mean yeah or boyfriends on the side or whatever yeah. So yeah, that that's what I think is that it's really fake religion. So you're talking about though, like Christian polit- politicians who happen to be Christian. What about just the Christian who's not a politician or whatever, just the average churchgoer? Like, what does political involvement healthy look like, and what does unhealthy involvement look like? Well, it, look, the, if there is a candidate who you believe is worth supporting, you know, by all means, you know, support them. You know, canvas for them, door knock for them, hand out brochures for them. Um, you know, stand up for causes that you believe in. I mean, in my case, my my sort of two pet causes in Australia are opposing the gambling lobby. Uh, in Australia, you guys have like the NRA and Planned Parenthood. In Australia, we have like the gambling lobby, which is basically I describe as a cross between the NRA and a Mexican drug cartel. Um, they are these people are are just so the the gambling lobby in Australia is just so incredibly powerful like you can't believe. So I'm always 
the yeah, gambling the wait they're they're lobbying to make gambling legal i'm sorry i don't understand what um or it's already legal but they i mean our advertising is saturated in gambling ads they want uh, minimal tax things so that the gambling lobby in australia is like like is more powerful than the nra they make wow. donations to both political parties when politicians leave politics, they get jobs as consultants and lobbyists for the gambling lobby. And, you know, we have some of the highest rates of gambling addiction in the world. Australia loses more money on gambling per capita than any other country wow. in the world. Um, so it's it's kind of like, it's like, you know, it's it's, it's a little bit like, you know, imagine if you had a, 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 a country with the same gambling ethos as Las Vegas. Or something like that, and none of the politicians don't. None of them want to do gambling reform, and the ones that do can never get away with it because the gambling billionaires will just throw huge money against anyone who stands up to them. And we're gradually getting a few small reforms in Australia, but man, they 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 are just a power. so one of my one of my little my my sort of hobby horse is to standing up to the gambling lobby and also standing up for religious freedom because that's becoming a little bit more contested and complex in Australia. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh provides you with farm fresh, healthy meals delivered right to your doorstep. Okay, so my family and I, we love to eat healthy. We cook most of our meals at home, but even for us, there are several times throughout the week where we just need like a quick and easy meal. And if I can confess to you, yes, we do keep boxes of like frozen taquitos and orange chicken in the freezer to cook when we're in a rush. But this stuff is super unhealthy. This is why I'm so excited to learn about HelloFresh. Okay, so HelloFresh features high quality proteins, fresh produce and plans for many different lifestyles. It's no wonder why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. When you need dinner fast, don't just call for delivery and don't just go eat out, okay? It's fine once in a while, but it's super expensive and very unhealthy. HelloFresh gives you fast and fresh recipes that are ready in just 15 minutes or less. And honestly, it's super easy to order. My wife and I were in the car the other day and she literally ordered a meal in just a few seconds. And HelloFresh is 25% cheaper than takeout. So for the sake of your health, your time, and your wallet, go to HelloFresh.com forward slash T-I-T-R 50. Don't forget that 50. That's HelloFresh.com forward slash T-I-T-R 50 and use the code T-I-T-R 50. Okay, that's the code T-I-T-R 50 for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. Is that surrounding? You mentioned in passing questions around sexuality and gender. Is, is that is that just as much of a lightning rod in Australia as it is here? Or do you see... What are the what are the what are the what similarities and differences between LGBTQ related questions on a secular level and yeah? Here's the problem: we have a lot of faith based schools, so we have a lot of Christian schools in Australia, and they make up about fifteen percent of the education sector. So fifteen percent of people have their kids in a private Christian, Catholic, or Muslim school. Really? So that's one thing. But here's here's the thing. The private schools in Australia do receive government funding. Uh, okay, so can you see where there might be a problem yeah, here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and and so, can a Christian school uh, refuse to hire a teacher who is gay or in a gay or, or no, married to you know like another man or married to another woman if they're a woman? Um, how do schools maintain their religious identity? And have a non-discrimination policy towards faculty, staff, and students, hmm. uh, and that's the big date, the debate we're having at the moment. Um, you know, and you, you do get you do get a case where a school will expel a student for being gay or something, or some teacher, you know, stands up and says, "I now support, you know, this cause over here," and that and that and that teacher is then their employment is terminated. Um, you, you've got all these sorts of issues going on. But, I mean, if I can give you, like, three examples of the problems of religious freedom in Australia, I think this will elucidate it nicely. There was a, a, there's a guy called Andrew Thorburn who was a former CEO of one of the largest banks in Australia. Uh, he left the banking sector. 
became the CEO of a football club, Essendon Football Club. So this is like AFL, which is you know, a type of football in Australia. Uh, it was He was also a member of an Acts 29 church, and he was on the board of the church. He was in the job for one day when the media found out he was also served on the board of his own church. Uh, the media made a big fuss about it because this was you know, Acts 29 church. They've got you know particular views about you know, abortion, uh, sexual activity, homosexuality. And so they, they made it, the media made a big fuss about this based on sermons that were preached at this church before Andrew even rocked up, before he was even a member of the church. The club gave him an ultimatum, resign from your church uh, board or resign from your position. He was given an ultimatum. Now, oh he had said nothing wrong. He had done nothing wrong. Simply based on his membership in this church, he was given an ultimatum. Okay. Now, there's a whole bunch of other things. So he had to. Re- so he resigned. But the club was eventually forced to make an apology. But I mean, this this was guilt by association. So you know, and there was a debate: Did Essendon Football Club do anything illegal? Can you terminate someone's employment? Huh because of what religious organization they belong to. Now, I would like to think you can't, but, you know, the, the premier of our state, most of the media uh, said, no, I, we think you should be able to terminate someone's employment if they, if they belong to a religion that doesn't represent your values. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's one example of it. Second one is trying to resolve this sort of, you know, LGBT rights and, and religious schools we had a thing called the Australian Law Reform Commission produce a report about how to balance it. And it was a terrible report um, because it it, it recognises that there's an international standard of religious freedom called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 18, which includes things like uh, religious freedom in education and in community with others. And the whole report was just trying to get around it. So our government produced a report about religious freedom and education of which its main purpose was to get around having to adhere to international standards of human rights and, and religious freedom. Hmm. And I'll give you one final example. Uh, we have a, a what's called a territorial government, kind of like, you know, Washington, D.C., how it's its own little government. Mm-hmm. Uh, they passed a law so they could sit, compulsory seize a Catholic hospital. They did it because this Catholic hospital would not do abortions or euthanasia. And they they did not like that. So they quickly passed a law so they could acquire the hospital. The legislation included the police being able to use reasonable force to seize the hospital if the Catholics resisted. And they took over the hospital despite protests from um, the Catholic Church. And the first thing they did, and they did it on a Sunday, was they took the cross off off the hospital. I mean, I mean, they they went in, they took it over, and then on a Sunday, and you've got to pay construction workers a lot of money to work on Sunday in Australia. It's called penalty rates, and they wanted to take it off. And this was a government taking punitive actions against a religious faith-based hospital because they would not kill babies in utero and they would not kill dying people. And so those three points, the Andrew Thorburn affair, guilt by association, Australia Law Reform Commission trying to get around um, international standards of human rights and religious freedom, and a, a territory government taking punitive actions against Catholics. That's the somewhat contested nature of religious freedom mm-hmm. in Australia. Are those f- like more fringe examples, or is this are they becoming pretty common? Because that's that's pretty eerie, right? And is that like is that normal? Is that typical? Or are these like no, it's not. It's not normal. This is all in the last twelve months. Oh wow! Okay, so, so things are getting worse. That, you would say, yeah. And this is and this is this is why um, all the stuff I warned about in my book, "Religious Freedom in a Secular Age" in 2020, all the stuff I warned about is happening in 2023. So I'm not saying I'm a prophet, Preston. I'm just saying the stuff I said was going to happen is happening. <laughs> That's the definition of a prophet. <laughs> I, th- I think we are having a more adversarial relationship with government actors, particularly with progressive governments who are running roughhead on um, religious freedom, freedom of conscience, freedom of association. And again, for me, the solution is a healthy dose of secularism. Hmm. You know, you can't sack someone because of what church, mosque, or synagogue they're part of. Um, religious schools have the right to maintain their identity 
even though a non-discrimination principle certainly should be the norm. Mm-hmm. And government does not take punitive actions against hospitals because they won't kill on behalf of the state. Uh, th- th- this is what, as a Christian leader, I see myself fighting for. Mm. And I need to do that. I need to have some level of political involvement. So I need to bring this to awareness of politicians. I need to tell them about it, campaign canvas and saying, this is happening on your watch. And this is not going to help us be a multicultural liberal democracy. Uh, forget making Christianity great again. I just want to make liberal democracy great again, where people have the right to be different without fear of reprisal. So you would see it as an expression of your Christian faith to push back against what you would see as a violation of religious, I guess not just religious freedom, but would you say a violation of the Australian constitution? Like you're, they're going against what their own documents say they should be doing? Would that be an accurate statement? Or Yeah, I see myself fighting for uh, a liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, uh, you know, democracies, uh, it's not, it's not an, an electoral mob. It's not like we can vote and we don't like the Jews, we don't like the Muslims, we don't like the atheists, we don't like the gays, and then vote laws against them. We are a constitutional democracy, and the purpose of a constitution is to protect minorities against a majority. Mm. I mean, that's the purpose of things like a Bill of Rights. That's the purpose of international standards of, of human rights law. So I see myself standing at a, a, a for a liberal democracy over and against Christian nationalism, over and against, shall we say, uh, illiberal progressive politicians um, who think Christians or Jews or Muslims are effectively somewhere between begrudgingly tolerated and enemies of the state. Are the ones who are concerned about this just the Christians, like which is a small population, right? I mean, committed public evangelical or just Christians in, in, in Australia, or are there other people that aren't even religious, they would say, man, that's not right for the government to be overreaching like this. Yeah. I mean, on the Calvary hospital seizure that happened in, in the, in Canberra and, uh, that, that, that did get, that did get a lot of media attention and, uh, both from left wing and right wing media. And I think people did, did get the impression like, mm, this is a, hmm. this is a pretty, um, disproportionate response. To, to what they're doing, you understand the the government doesn't like Catholic hospitals because they you know well, they won't do abortions or, or or things like that. I mean, but and and what I wrote to the the chief minister of that thing, I said, just think what you've normalized. It, the the minute you say it's okay to start taking punitive actions against a religious community, what happens if next time we get a right wing government who wants yeah. to start seizing the who wants to start seizing uh, a mosque? We've decided where your mosque is. We're going to build a playground. I mean, nothing personal. We just like playgrounds more than Muslims. Or what happens? A guy says, "Look, you know, you can't you can't defeat capitalism unless you defeat the Jews. So we're going to ban Jews from operating in the CBD, the, the, the you know, downtown business area." You know, I mean, you're going to a dark place. That's why I think we need to put the the, the liberal, I mean, the best sense of liberal, in liberal democracy. Sure. You know, where people have basic rights and freedoms. And we need to go back to that age, though, that you know, where people would say things like, you know, I disagree with what you say, but I'll defend your right to say yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. I want to go back to those days because yeah. those days seem long gone. Now we get people on both sides saying, I disagree with what you say, and I want to see you cancelled, punished, destroyed for saying it. You know, I want my tribe to be my tribe, progressive or conservative, to be hegemonic and all powerful. You know, I, I want a one-party state where, with a thin veneer of democracy, but where the other side never has a chance of electoral victory. I mean, we've that, that never that's not going to end well, left wing or right wing. That's not going to end well, and that's what I see myself fighting for. That's good. That's interesting. Um, where where is Australia at with uh, just to bring up a controversy with with a lot of the trans stuff, specifically with with youth and puberty blockers and all that. Cause I know like in a lot of European countries, I mean, Finland, um, I believe is not Holland. Um, I think Norway and, and, and more recently the UK, like they, they got so kind of into like a, uh, an affirm an affirmative position on, on care for trans youth, especially. And now they're realizing, well, we, we went way too far and now they're, they're pulling back a lot. Like with the whole the scandal with like Tavistock and all that blew up yep. with that recent report. And, and, and they're, they're even behind on some of the European countries. And these are, these are countries that are more progressive than us and Australia combined. So, so I'm wondering, 
And yet U.S. is still very all affirmative care. And I, in my prediction, we're, we're going to follow those countries as well. I think give it two, two to five years and there's going to be a lot of lawsuits, rethinking things, I, I think. I just can't keep going the way it is. But um, where, is Australia, it's, where it's, does Australia fit with? Yeah, it's, it's, it's mixed. It's mixed. So um, the sort of the trans affirming thing has captured big chunks of the media, um, okay. a lot of the corporate world. And also law in Victoria, we have what's called the um, gender the the gender suppression law that you you know you can't you you can't force someone you can't you, you can't pray for someone to change their sexuality or gender identity. Literally, it's the only jurisdiction in the world I know where they ban certain types of prayer. Um, well, you can't pray really, like out loud or to yourself, or oh <laughs> uh, well, I don't. Well, I mean, well, look, you, you can't, you can't. I mean, what they want to stop is like I pray for my friend Timmy that he would stop being gay. Um, you know, you can't. That that's illegal to pray that in public. You know, but but, but also, but it's also ambiguous because if I say, well, look, I pray for my friend Timmy that you know, although he's gay, he'll you know walk and walk towards the Lord and holiness. Even that could be technically illegal. Because if holiness requires some degree of suppression or restraint of your sexual desire or identity, that can be problematic. But let, let, let me give you let me give an example of of a bad problem. Um, I went to a government seminar about these gender these gender suppression laws, like things you can and can't say. And I said to this to this this government person, I said, "Can a medical practitioner, like a psychiatrist?" a GP, a nurse, um, can they treat an adolescent with gender dysphoria in such a way as they will desist in their symptoms? And the the, the government person um, explained it to me and said, no, they can't do that. You would They would be breaking the law. So anything other than complete affirmation okay. is illegal in the state of Victoria. Wow. So if a if a kid says, you know, I've been watching some TikTok videos and I want some puberty blockers, uh, doctors do not have the right of saying no, according to this government public servant um, who who led a seminar on this topic. So I thought that was very concerning. Uh, but on the other hand, I think the tide is turning. The Australian Association of Practicing Psychiatrists recently said that they don't support giving puberty blockers to children unless it's part of a clinical trial. And in Australia, I think recently there is, and this is, this is very interesting. This is interesting. A medical insurer of doctors has recently said they will no longer insure doctors who prescribe puberty blockers to children. Hmm. So if a doctor prescribes that they will not be able to get medical insurance for any defamation cases against them. Now, I do think the tide is turning uh, on this, but, we, we you you um i think i think we have to accept that um that the the trans movement has become a quasi religious movement you know i don't did you, did you see that image of drew barrymore you know kneeling before no. dylan mcmaney begging for forgiveness no. um if that's if that yeah i'm not joking yeah really? you get drew barrymore you know kneeling before dylan McIlvaney begging for forgiveness. If that is not a religious right, then I don't know what is. And I think the, I think the trans movement does have a kind of really weird um, religious spiritual quality to it. Yeah, and 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 so yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people are beginning to question it. Like I mean, the whole the addition of the you know the two SL at the front of it. Yeah, you know the two SL stands. You know, it's not just LGBT; it's two air. Two S. Oh, two spirit. Um, like, yeah, yeah. Two. I mean, once you start adding like my two spirits mm-hmm. to the LGBT thing, you are in. We 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 know what religion is. We know the 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 grammar of spirituality. Once you're saying that is a political identity and even a biological reality, you know, um, you're entering into a world of 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 religious devotion, but it's but it's being treated uh, as if it also demands. Um, public worship. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that, that the trans movement has become a, a quasi-religious phenomena where you can have a, I mean, I think identity has become a secular version of the soul. Mm-hmm. You know, ask people to describe what identity is and it's kind of like Plato describing the soul. 
it's the real true me that is can even be different from my body. Now, I mean, you probably know more about this yeah, than yeah. me. Press this is kind of your jam. Well, that, that's there's a. I mean, it, everything you're saying is very debated among. Well, see, I almost said secular. How about um, very left of center, non-religious clinicians, medical practitioners. You could throw in some radical feminists, which Australia has produced, produced not a small number of those. Um, so, so there's this isn't like a conservative liberal kind of debate. There's lots of disagreement, concern within even even um, traditional liberal non-religious uh, circles. Uh, yeah. So, so all that to say, there, there, there has been a concern about the concept of gender identity among se- secular, non-religious thinkers because it sounds very religious. And so, so it, 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 and some of the pushback is, you guys sound like Christians talking about this invisible mythological soul and talking about this thing called gender identity, which you can't, you know, especially people that are strong material materialists, which. You know, they're yeah. kind of hardcore, hard scientists, and, and they just want to see the only thing that exists is material reality. Um, they they have concerns over uh, the concept of gender identity. Yeah, the two spirit thing that that's largely kind of a Native American um, or First Nations concept. So it's it's more prevalent, I think, in the states. I'm 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 curious if it's being adopted. It's very prevalent in Canada. It's very big in Canada. Canada and, and, and once you go down that route, you've just given the game away that this is a religious phenomenon. Now, you know, yeah, I got no problem with religion, but re- yeah, r- religion, biology, and sociology are not all the same thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the state of the play in Australia. So you've got on the one hand a state government telling, you know, medical practitioners that they must be affirmative on every aspect. Um, you you can't treat a, a kid with gender dysphoria in such a way as they would desist in their symptoms. But then you've also got these other phenomena going on where I think people are definitely walking aback yeah. from the complete affirmation sort of a thing. So again, yeah, it is it is a very big it is a very big thing here. Uh, gender critical um, activists do, do not get treated very well by the media or by or by most of the media. Okay. Uh, so it, yeah, again, it is a big debate here, Australia as well, just as it is in the UK and USA. I'm surprised. I mean, it's to, if you pay more than five minutes of attention to what's gone on in, in again, the Norwegian countries, or especially in the UK with that report that was released and the testimony of the clinicians there. Um, I, I just don't know how you can know about that, and not rethink. So again, not, not even like become full on like Christian in your worldview, but just at least question some of the the um, affirmative only medical intervention with uh, teens expressing some kind of dysphoria over their, their, their biological sex. Like I just thought the Tavistock thing that blew up was kind of like, well, how can you? On, on Tavistock, i tell you something important. We have a major news broadcaster in Australia called the ABC, the Australian Broadcast Corporation. They have never reported anything on the Tavistock Clinic. Oh wow! Okay. They have, they have, they have like black banded. They they won't report anything about the clinic now. So other like right wing news outlets are talking about it, like yeah. the like News Corp. But the ABC um, has explicitly avoided all of the negative reporting about the Tavistock Clinic in the USA because of how captured the ABC is to this sort of ideology. So. And and people have said, how come you people don't talk about the Tavistock Clinic? And I said, well, it's about England and we're in Australia, you know, so we don't report stuff in England. We, you know, the only thing we talk about England is like who the prime minister is and Australia versus England in the ashes, <laughs> which is a load of nonsense because they re- they'll report anything. I mean, some guy, you know, yeah. slips on a meat pie in England <laughs> and they'll report it. Um, but, but again, it's agenda driven because they don't want to discredit the the total affirmation movement. Uh, so a leading broadcaster will not yeah. go anywhere near reporting what is very reportable news about yeah. the thousand families who are suing the Tavistock Clinic yeah. for premature or negligent um, transitioning, and particularly with the classic case of um, of Kira Bell. Well, and you have, I mean, uh, th- there's a recent podcast by Barry Weiss who. Um, she interviewed the head researcher on the one who did the independent evaluation of Tavistock and was part of kind of just, again, not, not like a criminal, not like a invest, just kind of reporting on what's that government inquiry. Yeah. 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 It wasn't even, but just saying, here's, here's what even the leader has said. And 
loads of people on the inside saying, gosh, feeling bad. Like, I feel like we've done harm. I mean, unintended, I think well-intended, but like, we need to really rethink this. So I, I, um, it's, I mean, I, it's not just like, at least in America, it's not, it's primarily classical liberals, like a Barry, Barry Weiss or other people like that, that are, are kind of drawing attention to this. So I, yeah. And just to be clear with our audience, I mean, if they're just tuning in right now, like, uh, I, I think a lot of this stuff going on in the public political sphere. And even when we talk about like, you know, activists or trans ideologies or whatever, going back to my 99 and one, I mean, for every one activist type that I might encounter, I might meet 99 that just are just trying to live their life and they're not, I, I mean, I, you know, of the dozen trans people that I would consider friends off the top of my head, I don't think a single one would even be like zealous for a lot of the ideologies that are, you know, kind of advertise in mainstream among mainstream activists granted you know a lot of the ones i'm interacting with or have some kind of religious faith on some level um but and i think what will lead to better treatment for adolescents with gender dysphoria and and and, you know because there are those who you know don't desist in their symptoms who who do go on so i mean i think what everyone should want is not to be affirmation or anti-trans what we want at the end of the day is what are the best treatments for adolescents with gender dysphoria and what we want is an evidence-based approach to give you know so we can give the best support for kids because we know we know psychology is complex biology is complex and the interface between both is very complex and all sorts of things can go wrong and get messed up so what we want is a, a, an evidence-based approach rather than some angry person on the left or the right determining what is the best medical care for these for these kids in a difficult difficult state. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we uh, have have opened up many different cans of worms here, Mike. Uh, in the last couple of minutes, can you, you want to bring us back to something a little less volatile? Uh, you are coming out with a book on uh, on Luke Axe. Do you want to give us a quick? Well, <laughs> quick bird's eye view of the book. I know it's called something. It like is. That. Well, it's called a bird's eye view of Luke Acts. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Luke Luke Acts is a big part of the New Testament. Did you did you know, Preston, that Paul's epistles make up twenty four percent of the New Testament, but Luke Acts makes up twenty eight percent of the New Testament. I did. I I knew it was a huge chunk. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, so Luke Luke Acts is the single biggest corpus of the New Testament. And it's basically a New Testament in miniature because you get Jesus and the story of the apostles. Okay. So it's it's basically a New Testament in miniature. And it's got some of the most famous stories of the New Testament. You know, you've got, you know, the you know, Mary's Magnificat, which you know basically makes Mary sound like a Marxist. She's always she's always talking about the the, the rich being sent away hungry and God vindicating the poor and that kind of a thing. Um, you know, you've got you know some of Paul's great sermons, like the one in the Areopagus. Um, you've got, you know, Peter's great sermon in, in, in Acts chapter 2. You've got this, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, you know, the parable of the prodigal son. So it's it's one of the most important pieces of Christian literature. And what I try to do in this book is explain where it comes from, what it's about. I mean, what are the things that people debate about? You know, uh, you know, is is Luke really a feminist or is it is he is it just a smokescreen? I mean, how pro women mm. is Luke? Because I mean, some people say, well, he's he's pro women to a point, but he's still he's okay. still a man in a man's world. And I try <laughs> to go through some of those issues. What what does Luke think about the Jews? Because I mean, the you know, Acts ends with a quote from Isaiah six that they'll be always seeing but never perceiving, always hearing but never uh, understanding, lest they turn and be forgiven. So what's I mean, what's Luke's view of the Jews? What does Luke think of the Roman Empire? Because you know, is he is he defending the Roman Empire? Is like, oh, then no, I mean, besides Pilate, they're not that bad, you know. I mean, so I, I try to go through all those, the, you know, the, the, the kind of difficult or thorny issues that Luke raises in uh, his gospel and Acts and, and ask, well, you know, what's the takeaway for us today? What can we learn for Luke Acts in our own, in our own context, our own world and our own place? 
So the book, the main book we've been talking about is Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, A Christian Case for Liberty, Equality, and Secular Government came out last year. And then when will your uh, bird's eye view of Luke Acts come out? Is that coming out uh, at the end of 2023? Or? No, that's coming out the, yeah, the, the end of 2023 in okay. November. Okay. It'll, be ready, it'll be ready for Christmas, makes a perfect Christmas gift or even a gift to your pastor or Bible study group. But if you want to get, a, if you want to get into uh, the largest corpus of the New Testament, if you want to know about Jesus and the apostles, I think Luke Acts is the place to be, and this will give you a literal bird's eye view <laughs> of Luke and Acts. Thanks, Mike, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you, bro. Preston, it is always a, a pleasure to hang out with you, and uh, we, we need to do a house swap again. We need to do a house we swap. We should. We absolutely need to get your... Uh... Get your house smelling like Budweiser and Old Spice again. <laughs> I can't believe you tweeted. You t- literally tweeted that. Professor Sprinkle stayed at my house for five weeks and now it smells like Budweiser and Old Spice. <laughs> I might have drank some Fosters yeah, well, there, but I certainly didn't drink any Budweiser. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, man. And I'll uh, I'll get I'll get out to um, Idaho and the uh, out and hang out with the potato farms. I look forward to that. I love me. Uh, yeah. I do like my potatoes. I do like oh, my potatoes. Man. We got some good so, ones out here. We got one, some potatoes. <laughs> one day. One day. All right. See you, Mike. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.